Can we say thank you to the worship team? You know, it's funny as I think sometimes uh, the team feels like, oh, if we just kind of strip everything back, that's like we're doing less work. And actually, sometimes I just think it turns out so beautifully and so awesome just to have it really simple. And our focus is on the Lord and on the words that we're singing. And so I love that. So, well, welcome back to SALT. My name is uh, John Reynolds. I actually get to be a pastor here at Cascade. Uh, I am the family ministries pastor. So that means overseeing basically birth through young adults. And I get to do a few other things on top of that as well. Um, And if I haven't met you before, which I'm seeing some new faces, uh, we're really glad that you are here tonight. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to get to know you, help you get connected here at SALT. We think this is an awesome community of people who are pursuing Jesus and uh, walking alongside one another. And so tonight we're really excited because this is our last night in the book of Job. Um, And so we've been in Job for a number of months, and now we are kind of moving to the place where we are wrapping that up. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Job chapter 42 tonight. And if you're looking for Job, if you go to Psalms, which is kind of right in the middle of the Bible, and then just go left from that, you'll run into Job pretty quickly. Um, But let me kind of talk about why we have been in this series on the book of Job. And this actually came out of... um, our SALT retreat that we did back in February. So in February, we're talking about relationships and the significance of relationships and friendships and challenges in friendships and romantic relationships and things like that. And so we started off that retreat. How many of you guys were at the retreat? Okay, so about half of you guys, maybe a little bit more. Uh, We started off that retreat um, with this survey. And so what we did was uh, I handed out this kind of anonymous survey. And the idea was that you would read the statement on the survey and mark the box next to statements that were true of you. And then what we did is I collected them all back from everybody, and then I shuffled them up, and then we handed them back out. And what we did is we just said, hey, if the card that you're holding, which is somebody else's survey, has this statement marked, would you just stand up? And so let me just read a couple of the things that were on this survey. I have suffered from mental illness in some form. That's depression, anxiety, other things. I've contemplated or attempted suicide. I've intentionally hurt myself. I have struggled with addiction in my life. I had significant trauma in my childhood. I'm wanting to break the cycle of a dysfunctional cycle in my family. I have or have had trouble with self-esteem or self-confidence. When I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see. I'm a survivor of or am currently walking through some form of abuse. I'm a child of divorce. I have secrets I hope nobody finds out about. The last one was something in my past is so big, I have felt or feel like God would never forgive me for that thing. And so we handed the survey out, and I expected that when we read through these statements, I'd have a couple of people that would stand up for each one of these. And to my amazement, and I almost couldn't finish the message because it was so overwhelming, was um, in almost every statement, 
about 75% of you guys stood up for all of them. The lowest response rate was 50% of you guys stood up for them. And I think I remember just in that moment being so overwhelmed with the amount of pain and suffering that so many of us have gone through in our lives, even at a relatively young age. And I remember one of the things that uh, was really profound was I think God was reminding all of us that so often the enemy wants to tell you that you're the only one that's struggled. You're the only one that's, had, that's gone through this thing. Other people won't understand. And I think uh, God was breaking those barriers and that wall down in that moment to say, no, uh, many of us have walked through struggles and challenges. And I think that helps us to know that we are not alone. And so when we came back, the leadership was saying, how do we address all of this suffering? How do we deal with this? Um, what do we learn about suffering and how do we think about that biblically? And so what we said was, let's look at the story of a man who was really acquainted with suffering. And so we turned to the book of Job. And so I just wanna briefly summarize Job for you. We've talked about this each week, uh, so I'll keep it really brief. But um, if you remember, Job was described at the beginning of the book as a man who was upright and blameless. He feared God and he turned away from evil. And so just right away we started asking ourselves, is that me? Am I upright? Am I blameless? Do I, do I have a fear of the Lord? And when I see evil, do I turn away from it or do I turn into it, right? And then what we see is uh, shortly after that, we see the scene of Satan before God and what we see is um, God talking about Job and Satan says, well, you know, he's only like that because you protect him, because you've blessed him so much, right? If you took away your protection from him, if bad things happened to Job, he would turn on you. And God says, well, let's see. And so he allows Satan to cause challenge and suffering in Job's life. And Job loses everything, his kids, his possessions, and even his health to the point where his wife says to him, you know what, Job, you should just curse this God and die because your life is so bad at this point. Just curse God and die. And then we see his friends come to help cheer him up. And initially, you know what, they do the right thing. They do a great thing. They do this thing called ministry of presence. They just show up and they don't say anything. They sit on the ground and they weep with him. And then as soon as they open their mouths, it all goes downhill, right? So they're hoping to help, but they end up doing everything but helping. Throughout the book, we see Job continually crying out to God, questioning God, making claims about God out of his pain and his suffering and his hurt. And then finally, in the last couple of weeks, we just looked at God's response to Job in chapters 38 and through 41. And what we looked at in the last couple of weeks was just the reminder that we are very much not God. We did not create ourselves, much less the world around us, and we don't have the ability to control things or to play God. God is God and we are not. God in those chapters was very much putting Job in his place, saying, I am God and you are not. And that's kind of where we're picking up tonight. And I think if you miss those messages, just a plug, we've started a podcast, so um, you can find more out tonight later on. But if you want to catch the message from Zach or from Jeff from the last two weeks, you can go check out the podcast. We'll give you more information about that. But let's go ahead and read Job chapter 42 together. I'm going to read it to you so you can follow along. 
I'm reading out of the ESV version if you're wondering. It says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is, it, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord had spoken these words to Job after he'd done that. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Here's that repeated line. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave a piece of money and a, gold, and a ring of gold, and the Lord blessed the later days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen. And a thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the second daughter Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapach. And all in all, there was in all the land there were no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man full of days. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we begin to dig further into your word, would you speak to us tonight? Lord, may our hearts be open to you. May we think rightly about you and about our lives. And God, I pray if there's things that you want to deal with in our lives right now, that uh, we would give you the space to do that. That we would not fight you, but we would lean into you, Lord, tonight. May our hearts be open and our spirits responsive, Lord. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. What we see at the end of chapter 41 is God's deep and powerful reminder of our place in the universe. That he is God and we are not. God asks Job and a number of times, can your right hand save you? And the answer presumed is no, it can't, right? And I think, you know, as we lean into chapter 42, I was just reflecting on last week and what this sets up and, and the reality of the life that we have seen around us in the last couple of years. What we saw going through a lot of COVID and all the protests and other things that we saw in life was how much we really don't have control in our lives. And what happens when we don't have control in our lives is often we seek to grab control for ourselves and we seek to grab power at any turn that we can. 
And often those who get any sense of power have a really hard time letting go of that. Can you think of anywhere that that's happened? Maybe even locally in our state, like somebody's still struggling to let go of some power that's coming to end at the end of next month, right? And sometimes we saw that in our attempts to grab power, maybe we couldn't do that. Maybe we were out of control. And then I think we saw that there was this rage that built up, especially in many of us in the US, where we saw this rage that we felt powerless because of the things that were happening around us, because our jobs were gone, our school was closed, life wasn't happening, we didn't have income, and then all of a sudden, all these issues started bringing up this deep anger from us. And I think some of that was because we felt powerless, we felt out of control. And it's easy to point out others in that how others have done this, but I want to encourage us How much do you and I struggle to maintain power and control in our own lives where we don't like being out of control? We want to know that I can do all things through John who strengthens me, right? And we want to be able to do things on our own power, right? Not saying that you would do all things through John. That would be foolish. But (laughs) that would be what I tend to do, right? The other extreme of this that I think we saw in the last couple of years is we saw a lot of comfort sinking is that we lost control, and so a lot of us pulled back and said, I just need to make myself as comfortable and as safe as possible. And so we put our own comfort and security over the others around us and over society as a whole. And I just want to say real briefly, neither of these are the proper Christian or biblical responses to suffering and pain. We are called to lean in when we suffer, to declare that our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Not just when things are good, but especially when things are hard and are out of our control. And that's just an aside. Let's jump back into Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Job starts this section by saying, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Job is declaring that he knows in a fresh way now, after having gone through what he's gone through, after God's response to him, he goes, I know that you are in control and you have all the power and whatever purpose you have, God, you will bring about. What we see in verses three and verses four here is Job actually quoting God's words back to him to tell God, I learned my lesson. I understand now because he says this. He quotes what God had said to him. He said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Or hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. These are both words that God said to Job that said, okay, I'm asking you, I'm questioning you. Can you answer these things? And Job's response is in verse 3. He says, therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things that are too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he goes on a little bit deeper, and he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He says, I thought I knew what was going on, God. I thought I knew all about how things were, but I was out of line. I didn't speak rightly. What he means is I knew about you. I knew about your character, God, but now I really know you. I know you because you have spoken to me. I understand what is true and what is right. I'm in a clear, I have a clarity in my relationship with you, God, and a right perspective. And this leads to Job's repentance to the Lord. 
where Job says, therefore I now despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He understands that God is God and he is not and that he needs to rest in that and that alone, that his hope is in God and God alone. Notice that through the whole response that we looked at over the last couple of weeks and even in this chapter, you know what God never tells Job? God never tells Job why he suffered. He never reveals to him why he suffered. There's not, oh, by the way, let me just tell you, okay, the whole reason we went through this was because of this reason. God doesn't give that information to Job. And I think that should be a lesson for us as well. That Job, like Job, like us, we have a choice as to where we are going to put our hope, where we're going to put our focus. And ultimately what we see is that Job trusts in God. He understands that God is God and he is not. Remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 21, when Job said this after he first lost everything. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Meaning, I brought nothing into this world, and I'm not bringing anything out of it, right? Like that, what's that old line? You never saw a hearse pulling a trailer, right? Anybody ever heard that before? You'll never see a hearse pulling a trailer, unless they're going to try and bury it with them, right? That was kind of like what the pharaohs did. It didn't work out so well for them, too. Somebody just robbed them, right? You don't enter this world with anything, and you're not taking anything out of it with you. And so what he says is this. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and so blessed be the name of the Lord. For us, it's a reminder that we're not in control of our lives. You and I are not in control. And that our hope, if it's in ourselves, or others, or our circumstances, or even our understanding, our control, then we're going to be very disappointed. There's an old story of um, a man who was shipwrecked and everybody else dies in the shipwreck. He alone survives and gets to this deserted island. And as he's on the island, he's feverishly praying to God, God, would you send a ship, send a boat, somebody to rescue me, right? And so every day he's watching on the horizon in the ocean and he doesn't see anything, nothing, right? And so finally he starts like, I guess I'm gonna be here for a while. And so he starts to build a hut and he puts some shelter together and he gets everything. So he starts to get comfortable and he builds stuff like a chair and a bed and other things. He's got a little stove and he's kind of making everything that he can. And so one day he's gotten fairly comfortable with his setup. He's out in the woods and he's kind of foraging for food and things like that. And then he comes back to the beach where his hut is and he finds that it is on fire and that he's lost everything again. And he's like, are you serious, God? He's like, what have you done to me? How could you do this to me, he cries. He goes to bed in anguish. The next morning, he wakes up, and he sees a ship on the horizon. And it's getting closer and closer. And eventually, they come to the shore, and he says, oh my gosh, how did you know I was here? And they said, well, we saw your smoke signal, and so we came to rescue you. And it's an old illustration, it's an old story, but the reality is that sometimes we just don't know what is happening. 
Sometimes we think we know why things happen and we assign motives to God that we don't really know. We don't really know if God was causing something or God didn't cause something. Hi, Haas, by the way. Go for it. Everybody say, hi, Haas. Hi, Haas. <laughs> Sometimes we think we have all the information about a situation, but from our limited knowledge, our limited perspective, we just don't. And so sometimes, because of that, we assign false motives to God. Sometimes we think God is causing something, and he's not, and sometimes we think he's not causing something, and he is. I remember being at a 30-hour family event, which was kind of like this community event with a bunch of churches. We got together, and we fasted for 30 hours, and we raised some money for charity. And at one point, we were praying for a man. Um, The man had cancer, and somebody was praying for this guy, and they said, Lord, we know that this is not from you. You have not brought this about. And I remember in that moment thinking like, like in general, I agree with that. Like I think that most of the cancer and the stuff that we deal with in life is a natural part of the fall of man. It's sin and brokenness that has been caused by the fall. But we don't always know that. We don't know that God wasn't using that to bring about something in that man's life for his good and God's glory. And so what can happen is when we start to assign a motive to God or claim to have understanding that we don't, I think we're putting ourselves in a dangerous position. What we need to have is a healthy biblical theology of suffering, which is what this book has been all about. And in this next section, verses 7 through 9, what we see is God challenging Job's friends because of that. He says these words to his friends. He says, my anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Here's the deal. Job's friends had a bad theology. They thought that if something bad happens to you, it was because you always did something bad. Right? This makes God a transactionary God. And we've talked about this a bit through this series that like, if I do good, I'm going to get good out, right? If I do bad, I'm going to get bad out. How many of you guys have ever heard of the book, The Secret or the movie, The Secret? Okay. A few of you guys. Good. I'm, I'm impressed. Okay. So this book came out a number of years ago. It sold like 30 million copies, right? And um, it was basically that idea that if you put good into the universe, you're going to get good out of the universe. If you put bad out of the, into the universe, you're going to get bad back, right? Uh, what you hear a lot more today, more than the secret, is manifesting. Like if I put my manifest board together, right? Like if I clip out of all these things in a magazine and I tape them onto this board, I'm going to manifest those things into my life, right? I just read an article the other day. Um, Not for my benefit, but because I saw it and I thought it was funny. Um, It was called How to Manifest Anything You Desire, Including Love and Money, Seven Easy Steps. Yeah. Right? And the idea is, is silly when you think about it at that level. But the reality is this has impacted the church. And many people function this way and believe that God actually operates this way. That if good comes, it must be because I've been good. And if bad comes, then it must be because I've been bad. And so here, Job's friends are essentially saying the same thing. And God is angry with them because he's saying, you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, some of what you said in your speeches was good. 
but fundamentally you got it wrong and you need to atone from it. You acted like you had all the information and you didn't. You didn't know and you presumed to know. And that was arrogant. You presumed to speak this way when you didn't know. And I think it highlights for us the need for our humility, especially when we're in relationship with people who are suffering, that we don't presume to know more than what we actually know. I had a friend who um, recently, their son has some major medical issues. And some people in their family said, you know, if you had enough faith, your son wouldn't have these medical issues. And if you had prayed harder, your son would be healed. Their son's not getting healed right now, at least not yet. And they're like, is that because my faith isn't strong enough? I had another friend who, dad was sick with cancer, and a family member told him, hey, uh, if you pray and ask faithfully, God's going to heal your dad. His dad dies. And he's carrying around this guilt that I didn't believe hard enough. I didn't pray hard enough. I must not be good enough. So we talk about these things. These aren't like just a nice theological idea. This is stuff that brings a lot of pain and suffering into people's lives. Do you know how damaging it is to tell somebody that your son is sick because you haven't prayed hard enough? Your dad died because you didn't pray hard enough? Let's not be prideful and arrogant like that. This is what, Job, what caused Job to call his friends miserable comforters. I love that phrase. You guys are miserable comforters. Essentially, you suck at comforting. <laughs> what we see is that God says Job spoke rightly about him. And we got to be like, well, how, how is that possible? Because you spent four chapters, God, basically rebuking Job. Like, how is it that you are saying he spoke rightly about you? And what I think we're seeing here is God's graciousness. He sees that Job had not sinned. He understood that he was not the cause of his suffering at that time, but that he was searching for answers. And in that searching, in that suffering, in that pain, in that longing, in that emotion, he said things that he probably shouldn't have said. And what we see is how gracious God is because God saw his heart and God knew his thoughts and he knew his intentions. And we saw that Job repented of that for anything that he had done wrong. And this should be a great comfort to us, that we should be free to struggle with God, that we should be free to express ourselves to God, that we should be free to share with God our frustrations, our challenges, and our pain. What is really fascinating is at the end of the story, God put Job in the spot of having to intercede for his miserable comforters. And God offered forgiveness to Job's friends through Job's own prayer of forgiveness for his friends. Isn't that interesting? I just wonder what that must have been like, right? Where Job, God's like, okay, by the way, Job, you know those friends who are miserable comforters? You know, I know how bad they were, right? I heard all of what they said. Okay, I'm willing to forgive them if you pray for them to be forgiven. Can you imagine Job, like in that? Like, was that easy for him to be like, okay, yeah, that's great, let's pray right now. Or was he like, man, okay, what do I do with that? The text doesn't tell us, but what we know is that he was faithful and that he did what God asked him to do. God restores Job after he forgives 
and prays for his friends. And I think it's just a reminder for us that it's true that sometimes when we hold on to unforgiveness, it tends to hurt us more than others. We don't know what is on the other side of forgiveness. What's cool here, too, is you see a little bit of a picture of Jesus in this story, of how Job is interceding on behalf of his friends, and Jesus intercedes on our behalf before God. It's a little picture into Job's character as well. The last section of this is Job's restoration, where God restores double everything of what Job had. And this restoration, this blessing that we see at the very end, is all just a grace from God. It's not a reward for his righteousness. It's not a reward for him doing everything well. It's just a grace from God. And then he gets to die a man full of days. So what do we learn from this book? We've been in it for months. We're wrapping up. What do we learn from this book? I think our theology matters. What we think about when we think about God matters. What we believe about God really matters. What we believe about ourselves really matters in how we approach our lives. In biblical counseling, we have this um, kind of illustration because often people come into counseling and they're dealing with some sort of issue. And often that issue, whether it's a struggle in their marriage, a struggle in a relationship with their parents, or an addiction or something, is the result of some other things that have gone on. They're symptomatic. And so we draw this picture of a house. So just use your imagination. It's like a little house, right? And sometimes there's a hole in the roof, and so rain is getting in, right? Sometimes there's a broken window. Sometimes the door doesn't work or whatever. And so we can spend time just fixing those things, But often what we know is if we don't address what's underneath the house, the foundation, then things are going to go wrong really quickly again. And so what we have to do is dig a little deeper. And we do that by asking three questions. The first question we ask is, who is God? When we understand who God really is, that he is a God of loving kindness, steadfast love, and abundant mercy for us, that he is good, that we can trust him, that he has a will and an intention for us, then it starts to shape everything. When we understand that he is omnipotent, all-powerful, that he is the creator of all things, then it starts to shape how we do things. The next question is, who am I? And all of us need to ask this. Who am I? Like, why am I here, right? Like, you're all sitting in this room tonight. You were born. Why are you here? And what we see is that we were people created on purpose, for a purpose, made in the image of God. And you have incredible dignity and value. And when you start to understand that, it changes how you look at the world. And next, we ask the question, what is my purpose? Like, what am I here for? And we answer that by looking at the great commandment and the great commission that we are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, then you are called to be on mission all the time. You are called to go and make disciples. And so when you start to understand, okay, I know who God is, I know who I am, and I know the purpose that I'm here for, it starts to all of a sudden, the stuff in the house 
starts to fix. It starts to fix itself because you have a right understanding of things. And then when challenge comes, when suffering comes, like it will, we have a way to think rightly about it. And so hopefully through this book of Job, we've been learning to think rightly about suffering. That we can learn to trust God, that our hope is in him and not ourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, um, when he's talking to the early church, he writes about suffering and going through suffering and going through challenging and, and what it means to be faithful in that. And he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, meaning those who face persecution, those who suffer, and maintain their faith in the Lord. They they are steadfast in that. They are blessed. And he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And what's amazing to me is that writing from James to the church was centuries after what occurred with Job. And you know, earlier in the book of Job, we read where Job was saying like, oh man, if a book were written about my life, like little did he know that like the early church, when they're facing persecution and suffering, would be looking back at the story of Job saying, that man dealt with suffering in the right way. He was steadfast in his faith. And then fast forward centuries, the early church is saying that. Now fast forward centuries beyond that, And we today are still looking back at the early church and then at Job and saying, wow, they were steadfast in the midst of pain and suffering and trusted in the Lord. That they say, though he slay me, yet I will put my trust in you. Yet I will hope in you, God. That should be an encouragement for us. What we see is that we can really grow in the midst of suffering. Just as Job got to know God better through his suffering, we too can do that. Even though Job was a man of good character before going through the suffering, he became a man of even greater character afterwards. We should learn that in this life, we're all going to face suffering, that we're all going to face challenging and our challenges, and our goal should not be to try and avoid that suffering or when we face suffering to turn away from God but rather to lean in and to trust God. To know that he is good and that he will make you stronger through that suffering. And that he has purposes you may never, ever find out about for your suffering and your challenges. But we can trust in that. I've shared this story uh, a couple of times in the past with others, um, but it's just made such an impact on my life, I thought I'd share it again with you guys. A number of years ago, I heard a story from uh, Jill Briscoe. And um, in fact, uh, Blake, uh, she and her husband used to teach at Cape and Ray, where, and so, there's a connection there. Blake's girlfriend's at that school right now. Um, So Jill Briscoe told this story set in Cambodia. If you know anything about Cambodia's history between 1975 and 1979, in Cambodia, this new leader came to power named Pol Pot. And he was this new revolutionary leader. He was a dedicated atheist. Uh, He didn't believe in God. And his government um, led state-sponsored genocide. And their goal was essentially to return the entire country of Cambodia back to an agrarian culture where they wanted to be just agricultural based. They wanted to rid Cambodia of all outside influence. 
They wanted to purge the influence of religion, of education, and of other ethnicities. And so what they did is over the years, they sought to arrest and torture and kill anybody from outside of the basic Cambodia ethnicity. So if you were Vietnamese, if you were Chinese, if you were Thai, if you were Cambodian Christian, you were a target. They also pursued anybody that had been involved in any type of free market activity. If you had contact with a foreign source, if you knew a Christian missionary, a US missionary, if you dealt with a international relief organization, you were a target. And if your parents were target, you as a child were a target as well. This eventually led to mass executions throughout the country and as many as 20,000 mass grave sites throughout the country. The term for these mass grave sites is called a killing field. Um, estimates and the total number of deaths from this time range from between two to three million people were killed in these years. That would be like, um, right now, the United States population is 330 million people, right? That would be like killing 124 million people in the United States. There was not a family that wasn't touched by this. There wasn't anybody who wasn't impacted. One of these killing fields, you can put that slide up, there's a commemorative stupa this big building, and it's got acrylic glass in it, and it's filled with 5,000 human skulls from one of these killing fields. Um, and a few years ago, I got to go to Cambodia, and we went and visited this killing field, and when you walk onto that ground, you just feel the darkness and the heaviness. And when you walk up, it's a hard image to look at, right? So Jill Briscoe is talking, and she's doing a video at this killing field for the World Relief Organization, and she's got a Cambodian translator, and as she finishes the video, she turns to her translator and says, how, how, how can you stand here and look at this? How do you deal with that? And the translator said, well, um, my mom's in there, my dad is in there, my aunt is in there, my uncle is in there, and most likely my brother as well. And in fact, I should be in there. But when I was thrown in one of those mass grave sites about to be executed, I played dead. And I waited for hours, and eventually I crawled out and crawled into the woods, and I escaped. And a family took me in, and they lied to the government and said I was their daughter. And eventually, as I grew up, I heard about Jesus and I came to accept him as my savior. And Jill just says, how? How is that possible? How do you go through all of that? Your whole family's in here and still you choose to trust God? You still choose to follow Jesus? How is that possible? And she says, well, here in the East, we think differently than you tend to think in the West, in Western countries. In Western countries, when you face pain and suffering, you tend to immediately pray, God, take this away. God, get this suffering off my back. And she said, but here in the East, we've learned to pray, God, make my back stronger. God, make my back stronger. God, make my back stronger. What a perspective. 
I remember when I heard this story, I was just immediately convicted and challenged because that perspective leads us to a place of deeper reliance on God, deeper dependence on God, deeper faith in God, deeper hope in God, deeper trust in God. A place where you realize that in this life we are going to have suffering. And we may not know the reasons just like Job. But we can trust in God that he is good and that he is faithful. And that ultimately he is working all things for our good and his glory. That our future hope is not in our circumstances right now. Our future hope is with him and with Christ. In the end, Job rightly declares, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In the end, Job declares, I must rest in you, essentially, God. I'm going to be molded by you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm not going to do it on my own. I'm going to trust in you. Whatever comes, whether you give or you take away, I will declare, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. This next series we're going to go into is all about spiritual disciplines. And the focus of that is to help us continue to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ, where we are molded consistently into the people God has intended us to be so that we can do the things God has predestined us to do, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, that he has good works for each of us to do. Are you willing to allow him to do that in your life? Even if it means walking through suffering and pain? What are the areas in your life where you face suffering? How have you faced them? Have you walked through those areas of suffering like Job did? Or is your natural tendency to be more like his friends? What are you taking away from this series? We've been in this book for a number of months. What are you taking away from it? How has, have you allowed God to transform your life? Is there anything in your life that you are still struggling with, that you're holding on to, and that you're not allowing God into that space? Can you tonight let him in? Let him speak to you in that. Let him show you that he is God and you are not. And when you give up that control, you're trying to hold on to, it's going to be way better than you trying to manage it yourself. Is there anything that you're blaming God for in your life right now? What would it look like to turn that blame into trust and to hope in him, even if you can't see the purpose? even if you don't know the purpose in that. We're going to go into small groups, and you guys are going to discuss questions. Uh, we've got questions for you that will be on the board, or you can use our kind of standard questions for your small groups. We're going to ask that you break into groups of six or so um, and talk, and then we'll wrap up in a little bit. But let me just pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, I just declare that you are God and I am not. I pray that all of us would be able to rest in that reality. That we don't always know why we go through hard things. But what we can know is that we can trust you in the midst of that. May that change how we face our lives. May that change how we speak into others who are suffering. 
God, as we go into our small groups, would you deal with us in any area that you need to deal with us? May we be open and vulnerable. May we remember that we are more alike than we are dissimilar. That if we're struggling with something, more than likely somebody else in that group is struggling with the same thing. But the lies of the enemy have no power in this room, God. May the music propel us. <laughs> Lord, um, in all seriousness, we just thank you for this night and this opportunity to gather. Would you speak to us, Lord? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.